A couple of weeks ago, a report into clerical sexual abuse in the Catholic Archdiocese of Munich was published in Germany. Among a familiar litany of horrific abuse and clerical cover-ups, a prominent name jumps off the page. Joseph Ratzinger. Ratzinger was Archbishop of Munich from 1977 to 1982, but he is far more widely known as Pope Benedict XVI. Grazie, buonanotte. Grazie a tutti. A title he held for eight years until 2013, when he resigned from the role. Ad condizionem certam perveni virus mias. The investigation in Munich, which covers the period during which Benedict served as Archbishop, found nearly 500 cases of sexual abuse in the diocese between 1945 and 2019. The report claims when Benedict was Archbishop in Munich, he knowingly allowed abusive priests to continue working for the church without sanctions. Pope Benedict denies the accusations. Evidence of nearly 67 abusing priests has been revealed so far, but there were most likely many more. I'm Sarah Chapalak and this is In the News from the Irish Times. Today we speak with Irish Times Berlin correspondent Derek Scally about why the former Pope has been implicated in the Munich sex abuse scandal and ask, what does all this mean for the Catholic Church? Derek, before we get into the details of this clerical abuse report, can you take us back and remind us, who is Pope Benedict XVI? Well, officially, he's emeritus Pope Benedict XVI, the first retired Pope in centuries. He, before that, he was the first German Pope in centuries. Um, he became Pope in 2005 when John Paul II, um, who was elected in 1978, he died in 2005. And uh, Ratzinger, Joseph Ratzinger, as he was born, uh, succeeded him in 2005. Now, for many years, uh, he had been his right hand, one of his of jo- uh, John Paul II's right hands in Rome. So it wasn't much of a surprise. But what was a surprise was when he stepped down in 2013, caught everybody off guard, and he just said, "Um, no, I'm gone. And um, Pope Francis was elected in his stead. And in the decades before he became Pope, Joseph Ratzinger worked his way up through the ranks of the Catholic Church in his native Germany, and he eventually became a cardinal in 1977. What can you tell us, Derek, about this part of his career? Well, really, he is considered by many as one of the great theological minds of his or, or subsequent generations in Germany. And he attracted really attention as a young man. He always seems to be destined to end up in the Catholic Church. He is one of three children. He was born in rural Bavaria in April 1927. Uh, and there's a story that he was five when he saw his first cardinal and claimed, I want to be a cardinal. So um, he came in from a very deeply religious um, Catholic family, a deeply anti-Nazi household. Obviously, Hitler and the Nazis loomed large uh, for anyone born in 1927. But he, he, he grew up in a very sort of an idyllic Bavarian rural Catholic background. It's sort of a lot of overlap with the Irish Catholic experience at that time. Bavaria was really um, the back end of Germany. It was a long way from Berlin or any of the big cities. And he was ordained in his native Bavaria in 51. And um, he was a theological professor, theology professor, when he was just age 31, which is very, very young for Germany. And later on, he became a key advisor to Bavarian bishops uh, in the 1962 Second Vatican Council, an attempt to reform and modernize and open up the church. So really from 
from an early age, he was on everyone's radar. He served in various universities as a theology professor. And then he was a bit of a surprise pick in 1977 to become Archbishop of Munich and Freising. He was more the academic end of the church rather than the pastoral parish work end. So he's always been um, considered a man made for greater things. And in 82, the call came from Rome, from Pope John Paul II, to become the head of the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith. But in previous centuries, that would have been the Inquisition. This is the, the part of the Holy See responsible for um, formulating and, and policing church teachings. So he really would have been seen as sort of the top person making sure that uh, the Catholic Church and, and priests and bishops were, were always in line on, with church teachings. And during his reign, what kind of pope was Benedict? Was he in favour of reforming the Catholic Church or was he seen as a more conservative leader? I always think there's sort of, there's always been two Benedicts or two Ratzingers. One is very much a theologian. Um, he was considered one of the, the brightest people of his era. But as Pope, there was sort of a, a view of him as a conservative. I would say somewhat, somewhat unfairly caricatured as sort of God's Rottweiler was a headline that was often used, which is rather simplistic. But throughout his career, I mean, he's always been interested in bringing Catholicism back to its roots, as he would call it, cutting away lots of the attempts to modernize it, open up the church. He says that this was a, a mistake and he's deeply opposed to what he calls relativism. He talks throughout his career of something called the dictatorship of relativism, the idea that modernity is sort of an anything goes type society and you know, starting with sex and the student revolution. He was deeply opposed to a lot of the thinking and the progress and the liberalisation of that period, deeply traumatised by it. He was attacked as sort of a traditionalist conservative. Uh, so anything that, you know, sex and the body and anything goes that he, he would even say that has led to part of the problem of clerical sexual abuse. So he's always been very opposed. He's horrified, as he says, by the filth, as he calls it, of child abuse. And he would actually attribute some of it to sort of the swinging 60s. So he's really lived in in opposition to a lot of the movement, other movements within the church to open up and saying the church is falling behind. And um, he would say, no, we, we must never try to catch up with anything. If we try to trying to adapt to modernity is the beginning of the end of the Catholic Church. And he has many adherents in the church who agree with him. So there's a, there's always been this tension within him and that tension is really starting to come back uh, with these new allegations. So that brings us up to why we're speaking with you today, Derek. Archbishop Ratzinger, as he was known before, has been named by Munich investigators as a potential accessory to child abuse during his term as Archbishop of Munich from 1977 to 1982. Now, it follows a report into clerical sex abuse in the Catholic Archdiocese of Munich and Freising. Derek, what has that report found? Well, the report was commissioned uh, by the Archdiocese itself. In Ireland, we're used to sort of state commissions, but in this case, it was actually ordered and paid for by uh, the church itself in Munich. Uh, they asked the law firm to go into their archives and to basically just go through personnel files and other files. And I think they spent about 18 months doing that. And they came up with, um, between 1945 and 2019 was their remit, and they came up with almost 500 cases, 497 cases of clerical sexual abuse and 67 alleged perpetrators during that time. They said, you know, all archbishops and cardinals in Munich and Freising, which it must be pointed out is really a, a, a bulwark of German Catholicism, Cologne and Munich would be considered the two big pillars. Um, so, But they said that every archbishop cardinal since 45 had cases on their desk of abuse or they knew of abusers uh, and in a rather familiar 
stance to Irish ears put the institution before the church or played it down or allowed themselves to be told, that, well, they've caused problems, but there won't be any scandal in the future. Um, so it was largely a, a paper investigation. There were 50, just over 50 interviews, including Ratzinger. It was a written interview that did with him. I think even the Archbishop of Munich, who uh, commented on the report last week, he said it was just devastating how deep it went, how far back it went and the sheer scale. Derek, tell us a bit more about where Pope Benedict fits into this scandal. They flagged four cases which they've said are problematic. I should point out this is um, these are cases. This is a report. It isn't a court ruling and so on. They've flagged these cases and they said these are problematic. Uh, and they, there was a case of a of a priest who photographed young girls. There was a priest who seems to have been an exhibitionist. The most serious case was the case of a priest who was from Western Germany. His diocese wrote to. Archbishop Ratzinger and Munich in 1977, and they said, we would like this priest to have psychotherapy in Munich. Would it be possible for you to take him in? And um, this person was an abuser in his home diocese, and he went on to be an abuser in uh, Munich and Freising. It should be said after Ratzinger had left for Rome in 82. So the question that is on the table is, was Archbishop Ratzinger, as he was at the time, aware this man was a paedophile? Was he aware that there was a risk in taking on a paedophile? And did his actions in 1980, did that did that open the door for this person to be an abuser later on? And it's hotly contested. So on that, Derek, as part of this report by the investigators in Munich, Benedict submitted an 82-page written testimony. Now, in that, the former Pope denied knowing about these four problematic priests that you've mentioned, including the priest from West Germany who, the report says, was moved to the Munich diocese and went on to abuse children. But Derek, this testimony has already been the subject of some controversy. Why is that? Well, the, the testimony itself was considered controversial because it was very quite dry. It was quite legal. Um, he took swipes at the investigators claiming they were biased. Um, and he just heatedly denied knowing anything and could have known anything, should have known anything, is responsible for anything. And he said uh, in the case of this particular pedophile priest that uh, he didn't attend a meeting where it was discussed. At the launch of the report then, the prosecutors produced uh, minutes of a meeting from January 1980 and they said it's quite clear he was at the meeting. And then when he had to backtrack and say, oh, yes, there was a crucial meeting, uh, which I denied attending. I denied attending it three times. Uh, that was a, a slip. That was an editorial error in putting the answers together. And that just it's it's all you can make a slip over something. But making the same slip three times in a piece of paper where you've where you've said that you've perfect recollection of, of people, places, things and documents. That just seemed a step too far for some people. Um, but it's very much he said, she said the lawyers seemed quite firm about it. Um, bishops in Munich aren't taking any position yet. They said, we'll wait until uh, Ratzinger, Pope Emeritus Benedict responds. But as you can imagine, as that just set off a bomb. I just want to reflect again on what happened when Benedict admitted that certain aspects of his initial 82-page testimony weren't entirely correct, but then stood by the fact that he had no knowledge about the priest's history. What has been the public response to that, 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 that the fact that he, he did essentially lie? in his initial document. It's really quite difficult because, I mean, the 82 pages are quite dense and, uh, I mean, they're lawyers' questions and they're lawyers' answers, so to speak. And some people have said, we're not even sure how much of this he's written himself. He is 94. But in his testimony, quite strikingly, he said, I am 94, uh, but my mind is quite 
fresh and quite clear. And if I say, these were sort of preface to his, his quest, his answers. He said, if I say in my answers, I do not know, that means, doesn't mean I cannot remember. It means I never met that person or saw that document or attended that event. So he really sort of painted himself into a very narrow corner. So that then when he had to come out and say, well, that was an error. I did attend that meeting. Um, well, which is it? Either you remember everything, you you can you have perfect memory of everything that happened forty, fifty years ago, or you don't. And uh, and then of course the question has been asked here. Well, if he's not telling the truth about that, um, what else isn't true in the testimony? I think most people I've spoken to they're just sort of very saddened that the, in the report there is a the few paragraphs about, of course, the, the terrible crime of child abuse and what it does to survivors, but he doesn't seem to have done anything wrong in his career as archbishop or subsequently he doesn't seem to have had any role in that. And that seems to be, I think, what people say is slightly not credible because he was always has been a, a, a member of sort of like a clerical culture that people in Ireland and elsewhere say was deeply problematic, is deeply problematic and is an essential part of trying to understand how this horror happened and how it went on for so long. Coming up... How Germany's clerical abuse scandal compares to our own dark history in Ireland and what happens next with the Munich report. The Klein report excavates the dysfunction, the disconnection, the elitism that dominate the culture of the Vatican today. The rape and the torture of children were downplayed or managed to uphold instead the primacy of the institution, its power, its standing and its reputation. So Derek, it's worth mentioning that you are very well placed to be talking about this story because not only are you our Irish Times Berlin correspondent, but you're also the author of the recently published book, The Best Catholics in the World. It was published last year. Your book is an account of Ireland's relationship with the Catholic Church and how we've come to terms with its troubling past. Given your knowledge of these two situations, can you draw any parallels between what has happened here in Ireland with the Murphy report or the Cloyne report into clerical sex abuse and what is happening in Germany right now? Yes. Um, I mean, there are huge differences, obviously. Um, Germany is the country of the Reformation. So Christianity is sort of split down the middle between Catholics and Protestants, which is very different to Ireland. Ireland, very much Catholicism was very much part of Irish, independent Irish national identity. So, I mean, the starting points are quite different. But what is quite depressing, I have to say, was reading almost 2000 pages of, of testimony from Germany and just seeing the same phenomenon, the same words, the same actions, you know, most obviously um the idea of avoiding scandal and moving priests around and trying to cover things up and you know attacking people who came forward as you know trying to destroy the church and uh, and just being blind to the avoidable anguish and horror that these children would have gone through. That's all very, very familiar to Irish ears. Um, I mean, in the Murphy report, that was the report into the Dublin Archdiocese in 2009, 
The Child Abuse Commission, 10 years after it was set up, today published its five-volume report, and it makes grim reading. And uh, Judge Yvonne Murphy had a, a wonderful phrase where she talked of undue deference, that there was a, you know, priests and, and bishops and uh, cardinals in Ireland would have demanded a kind of a deference that she said was really, it wasn't due to them, but they demanded it anyway, and the population went along with it. The Department of Education knew that violence and beatings were endemic within the system, but its deferential and submissive attitude towards the congregations compromised its ability to carry out its statutory duty of inspection and monitoring the schools. I see some of that in Germany, particularly in places like Bavaria, where you know Catholic bishops, Catholic priests would have had a huge standing in the community. So that, that you can see traces of that from Ireland in the German context, in the Bavarian context. But one thing that jumped out of me in the German report was a term uh, unfreiwillige Komplizenschaft, which means people were complicit, but not of their own free will. And what they mean by that was that somebody, let's say in a personnel department of a diocese, they put a priest into a position and that priest starts abusing and and then what do I do now? If I take him out, people will say, what is the problem? And then they will find out that I put him there. So I, I, I am obliged to move him somewhere else. So you end up with this terrible pattern of trying to cover up mistakes by making more mistakes. That notion of complicity, maybe not of your own free will, maybe you didn't go in with your eyes open, but when your eyes are opened, you don't pull the plug on this, you keep it going. And that was very familiar, I think, to anyone in Ireland. How is the news of recent weeks going down with the general public in Germany? I mean, for German Catholics, as we've talked about, it was a great source of pride that Pope Benedict was one of their own. What have people been saying to you since the report was published? Have you spoken with any Catholics who are becoming even more disillusioned with their religion? Well, in practical terms, um, it seems to have accelerated what we were already seeing, which was people leaving the Catholic Church in record numbers. Now, in Germany, they have a thing called church tax. So uh, when you're baptized into the church, you're officially part of the church. And when you start working, you're expected to pay church tax, which it works out at its billions every year. And if you decide, I can't take enough of this, or for whatever reason you want to leave the church, you physically can. You can officially fill in a form. You go to your town hall. Um, and people in record numbers um, have been have been going in Bavaria, but all over the country. We're talking about 200,000 people about a year leaving the church. And this seems to have accelerated things. It's obviously, it's only two weeks since the report came out. But in Munich, uh, when I went there, they said, yeah, numbers are twice the usual rate. I spoke to a couple um, who have been, they were over 70 each, and they've been in the church all their lives. But they said, no, this is, you know, this is worse than we thought. So they filled in their forms and that's them gone and many other people seem to be voting with their feet as well. So they can literally hit the church in their in their wallet, which for an organization the size of the Catholic Church, that is very worrying for the future because the pews were emptying anyway. So if younger people who are earning are walking out and taking their tax money with them, that's obviously existential. You've also written, Derek, about how the German Catholic Church is facing a second challenge, and this time it's from its LGBTIQ plus members. Uh, the Out in Church group, they want to see an end to discrimination against same-sex couples in the Catholic Church. What have they been saying? 
Yes, last week, um, this organization, which has been apparently working on this campaign for quite some time, they came out with a, a massive media campaign, a website and a one-hour documentary on German public television. And there were priests, there were theologians, there were kindergarten workers. Germany's Catholic Church and Lutheran Church is there, some of the largest providers of old-age care and kindergartens. And they were basically saying, you know, we resent being told that we are uh, disordered, that our love is somehow second best and that we at best we are tolerated at worst we are discriminated against and particularly for employers uh, employees who work in kindergartens and in schools and in old age care they they have to sign a, a work contract that says you know we agree to live with the church teachings and if we don't we can be fired because the german catholic church um it sort of exists in parallel to the german state so it has its own labor law and anti-discrimination law does not apply so they were saying um, it's enough we've had enough of this you know we this can always be you know we, we we they might turn our employer may turn a blind eye to this but if we ever do anything they can use that against us and this threat of this being used is often worse than the actual use of it so um they're saying it's time to reform that and actually it's 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 come it's had a hugely positive reaction from many bishops they've said yes this has been an issue that's been dragging on for too long we need to look at the labor law issue uh, they've been far less clear on whether they changed church to catholic church teaching on homosexuality but um Yes, it certainly came at a at a moment where bishops were in desperate need of some positive publicity. So many seem to have embraced this. Whether they would have done it with or without the Munich report, I don't know. But it seems to have um, struck a chord. Do you think the Vatican is listening to and hearing both this pressure from LGBTIQ plus Catholics and also the public anger at the Munich report? Do they see what's happening? I think they do, but I think from my time researching the book and visiting Rome, I mean, the first thing you do when you go through the Apostolic Palace is you see this massive map on the wall of the known world at the time, which was, I think it's in the 1500s, this map was painted and the world has gotten much bigger since then. And, and Western Europe, I think, and many people in the Holy See and the Vatican is, is viewed as sort of a, a uh, sort of a, a dying market, as it were, and that the, the, the Catholic Church is growing elsewhere. And those places where it's growing are far less liberal, far less, you know, Western, obviously, than, than the Catholic Church. So the idea is, which, which church should we be catering for? The growth areas, you know, in the Philippines or in South America or in Western Europe. So I think that's how they think. And I'm not sure whether pressure from Germany will change their minds because their ultimate aim is to keep the church together, the Catholic Church together, whatever the cost. But what is interesting is the German Catholic Church is very influential. It is very wealthy. I assume some of that wealth goes to Rome. But Germany is also the, uh, the country of the Reformation, this massive split uh, in the 16th century with Rome. And at the moment, there's a, there's a process called the synodal process where lay members and bishops and cardinals have come together to discuss where the Catholic Church in Germany is going, what reforms are needed, what reforms are possible, what can be agreed at local level in Germany, what needs to go ahead towards Rome. And many people around the world are looking at this, some with amazement and some with horror. They think that there's sort of a new schism, a new rupture is looming in Germany regardless. And that, you know, this abuse report and the LGBTIQ plus campaign out in church is part of that. So there's definitely a sense that um, this has been building. I mean, it got in Ireland from the late 90s, but we're sort of, we're getting closer and closer and closer to the heart of the issue. And the heart of the issue is, is there a systemic problem? Is clericalism part of the problem, not the solution? What does the church's response to sexuality? You know, it's very energetic. We're talking about 
protection of children in the future, but what about legacy cases? And at the end of the day, is it prepared to allow anything happen to a former pope? I think we'd have to go back to the Middle Ages to have something like that happen. But, you know, it was back in the Middle Ages when the last pope resigned as well. So we're really into unprecedented territory here. And whether or not they will be impressed by what's happening in Germany, I don't know. But when the the last pope was German and he is now the focus of all of this, um, I think we're really into ground zero. So right now, 42 of these clerical sex abuse cases are with Munich state prosecutors for closer examination. What happens next? Is there a chance that Benedict could face criminal charges in relation to these cases? Do you think he could be convicted? Well, all I know is um, I found out last week that 42 files had been passed on to the Munich state prosecutors and that Pope Benedict's name is uh, Joseph Ratzinger's name is in some of those files. How many cases, I don't know. Um, but the prosecutor has been very, very cautious with this. And they said they're aware of this. They're examining um, what has been submitted to them by the lawyers. The lawyers said, we think these cases have merit. They should be looked at. Um, the, you know, the prosecutors in, in Germany have been very, very lo- loath to take on the Catholic Church and uh, politicians the same, uh, which is no surprise to Irish ears. But there is a question of whether something has shifted and um, the expectation is now far too high to let anything go. But yeah, taking on Ratzinger, you know, we're a long way from anything resolving a, a prosecution. This is sort of a preliminary, preliminary investigation. But somebody who said in his own testimony that he's of sound mind, uh, you know, theoretically, could he go on trial? Yeah, who knows? It's very, very, very early days. But the fact that we're even having this conversation, I think, shows how serious things are. Derek, thank you as always for your time. Thank you very much. That's all for today. My thanks to our guest Derek Scally and you can read more of Derek's coverage of the Munich Clerical Abuse Report at irishtimes.com. This episode was produced by Jennifer Ryan. In the news, we'll be back on Monday.